Thank you for being a listener of the Women in Tech podcast. To support the podcast and cheer us on, become an MVL Most Valuable Listener on our private feed where you'll have ad-free episodes and join us in Zoom meetups to meet other listeners of our podcast community. Go to womenintech.love, linked in the show notes. They are faced with that same trade-off they reach out to me and they say, Joni, can you give me some advice? How do I do what you did? And I say, well, you have to be okay with probably not getting promoted as fast as your peers to invest in your skill set and your networks to build a brand. And a lot of them don't want to build the brand. They want the safety of the employment and the regular promotion track. Three, two. One. My name is Esprit Devora, host of the Women in Tech Show. The show means a lot to me. The reason why I wanted to create the Women in Tech Show is I wanted to create a positive piece of content, something where people can listen and say, if she can do it, so can I. Hi, this is Joe Peterson. I'm the Vice President of Cloud and Security with Clarify 360. I've been listening to the Women in Tech podcast for about a year, and I was drawn in by the energy and enthusiasm of the Women in Tech podcast. Esprit does a really great job in sharing stories of women in tech so that young female listeners can put themselves in the shoes of these women speaking. See, I strongly believe that if we don't show young women the way forward in tech by sharing our stories, then they won't know what's possible. The stories are what creates the value and inspiration. Great job, guys. LinkedIn presents... to the Women in Tech podcast, celebrating incredible women in tech from all around the world. My name is Catherine Rohn, and I have the privilege of guest hosting this episode. And today with me, I have Joni from Melbourne, Australia. Welcome, Joni. Thanks for having me, Catherine. Glad to be here. Thank you so much for making the time. I know you're super busy. Look, I'm going to let you do the honors. How about you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you're up to these days? Sure. I am a tax lawyer by trade, but for the last six or so years have been specialising in all things Web3. So that started with tax advice. Uh, At the 2017 ICO boom, it became securities and financial products, um, as well as some commercial. And going on to DAO and DeFi summer, um, a lot of DAO structuring, NFT boom, we got into IP law and and it more more and more labor laws um, throughout all of that as people want to contribute to the space. There's issues in every area of law as it tries to apply to Web3. So policy has been an increasingly important part of my efforts. So, you know, the nine to five is is the client work, but then the 5 p.m. till 1 a.m. is usually writing policy submissions, which I think is is my way of contributing to the community and making it clear what is unclear and and what we need a little bit of help from policymakers uh, or even the builders, different ways of, of solving different problems. So that's me. Can I just say you made something that is traditionally quite a boring job sound really exciting? <laughs> I was like, oh, tax law, this is, here we go. And then you're like, oh, but then there's this and there's this. So it was just so exciting. 
But little tidbit, I mean, you didn't start off like your your journey is quite interesting, right? What did you start off as way back when, back in the farm days? Tell us about that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So I grew up on a mango farm, and that was my destiny. I, I should be a mango farmer right now. I should not be talking to you. Um, and I think my grandmother still wishes that I took over the farm because she's just sold it. Oh, she's, she's. I mean, great for her, but. You know, I'm guessing she tried to keep it in the family as much as she could. Exactly. So um, she's still letting go, even though it's officially sold. But but from a young age, uh, it was all hands on deck. Um, farming has always been a very hard living and it's very seasonal. But um, we were taught to work hard. And, and that's sort of um, the very early beginnings of why I've come to really uh, be passionate about this this blockchain technology because my parents and my grandparents worked so hard, but they felt like they could never get ahead. They just, you know, getting legal and tax advice to do structuring and negative gearing just felt too out of reach. And I thought, you know, when I'm in a position to make decisions that count one day, I want those to be good decisions about making the tax system fairer and simpler. <laughs> and so, hence the tax lawyer and and then with blockchain technology I see a lot of potential there so slowly inching my way into maybe those positions of influence that's awesome and so I guess the the burning question on my mind is how do you pick a good mango (laughs) (laughs) in the shops when you're Uh, actually yes I mean I can't say that I've gone mango picking you know how you can go strawberry picking and that sort of stuff? I haven't really done the mango picking. So if I'm in the shops, what's the best way to pick the best, juiciest, sweetest mango? Well, I, I probably think in a similar way to crypto, it's it's do your own research. <laughs> <laughs> oh, look at that plug. I, I just love how many questions I've come up with. And no matter where I go, you're just like, and we're back with crypto and Web3. I know. I love it. I love it. It's it's. it's Pulls out, you know, the passion. Well, it's that you common have. sense. Yeah, 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 it's, for sure. It's common sense. So the sticker, if if you went and looked to the background of the company, you would you would try to get a sense of of whether it's a big agri agri business company, so thousands, actually, probably tens of thousands of trees, or whether it's a family farm. And if it's a family farm, you're more likely to get a better quality mango. They will wait to the right time to pick the mango so that it it ripens on its way to the store, whereas the big agribusiness farms, they have to pick early um, and they pick it prematurely so you'll never get that ripened. You'll get a very bland-flavoured mango. Interesting. So there's a lot more TLC in a family farm than you have with big agri. I didn't even think of it like that. I was expecting you to say just grab it and smell it and if it smells sweet, you're good to go. That that was totally what I was <laughs> That was totally what I was expecting. But you know what? The next time I do this, I'm going to grab my phone and search up on that sticker to see to see where it came from. And so from Mango Farm, I mean, that's the outskirts of, you know, where you were living. So how did that then sort of, how did you catapult into sort of school and then going to law? Because that's, you know, that's quite a, a journey and a jump. I guess I always felt like a bit of an outcast. So I felt like I had friends at at primary school and and through high school, but I always used educational passion or achieving at school as 
bit of a crutch to get through um, the social interactions and that just wanting to achieve and get good marks was something that has been a feature of primary school, high school journey and even now like um, maybe perhaps you could say I'm trying to get good marks with, with both builders and regulators but when I, when I just look back through it, it's that desire to achieve is what gave me the confidence to interact with other people when I was achieving. And after many, many conversations and career building and constructive feedback, sometimes it's not about achieving and being perfect, but involving the community and the journey is the important part rather than the end. And and so that's, sorry to come back to it again, but that's why I love Dow First Thinking because I feel like the way I was brought up, I was always going to be institutionally trained to be deferential to the hierarchy, whether it be my grandparents or my parents, to the schoolmasters, you know, to my bosses initially. And you're always trying to have this perfect outcome or the perfect process, the most efficient process to get to an outcome. And you can become very insular. Whereas in DAOs, it does force you to break down those hierarchical and and the established processes to get to an outcome and be more community-like. And when you fought, and I've had to force myself to do that too, you realize that, and for me in Web3, as hard as I work, I'm actually building a friendship network because there are common interests that have each brought us there. And when I step back, no matter how many policy papers I've written or how many pieces of advice I've given, it's actually the people that I've been able to connect with along the way that are still my friends that make it a meaningful use of the time. And so that that's like I keep coming back to Dow thinking because that's what brings me back to what should matter in working to live, not living to work. And so I, I want to dig really deep into, you know, DAO, Web3, that sort of thing. And I'm, I, I will get you to define that for us because there's so many different, but, but I'll do it in an interesting way. But how did you, firstly, how did you make that jump from tax law, traditional tax law, into adding that sort of blockchain element to it afterwards? Because, I mean, you've been a proponent for it for a long time, for quite a few years, as you said, you know, back in 2017, where it wasn't even cool to be in crypto. So, yeah, what made you kind of make the jump? Well, Bitcoin didn't do it for me initially. I didn't get it. It was too hard to understand. And after a few times reading about it, um, going to a few meetups, it still didn't make sense to me. Ethereum is what started hitting home. And an article I saw at the time, I think this was back in 2015 or 16, was um, that that blockchain could be used to automate the collection of taxes so that people didn't have to worry about a tax return at the end of each year or all of these filing obligations. It reduces, it would reduce the red tape um, and not only that but make the use of the tax revenue more efficient. So, you know, it goes into this big pot and we don't know how governments are using it. Um, There's some sort of accountability and transparency reports, but you don't get a true sense of my tax dollars are going to this hospital or they're going to this road or 
you know, is, is it actually all going to defence and do I want it to go to defence? And I really liked that sort of efficiency and transparency, but the article was very high level and I've been trying to find the answers to how blockchain can be used in tax administrations ever since. Um, I've written a few pieces on on that and you can see those in published journals. Happy to share the links. That That's the the core of my interest, trying to use the technology for more efficiency and transparency and ultimately so that tax rates come down and you're only collecting the amount of tax revenue that you actually need to deliver the outcomes efficiently. So that's like a lifetime goal that I'll just keep chipping away at. How unreal would it be to have things like that, transactions, every single transaction that comes out of the government on-chain so that anyone who wants to see can actually go and see, oh, no, you're right, it did go here or it didn't go here. I really appreciate that you said that at first Bitcoin didn't make sense because a lot of people, when they talk about blockchain, they immediately gravitate to, oh, Bitcoin, that white paper was the game changer. And for someone like yourself who has such a level of sort of nuance and intelligence in the space to go, actually, Bitcoin didn't even do it for me. Gives people like me, the noobs out there, a lot of hope that we don't have to read the white paper 20 times to go, what am I missing here? Like, why is everyone so, um, you know, bullish on on this sort of technology? But I I think you're right. You know, if you do know the differences between sort of, you know, Bitcoin and Ethereum and the applications of each, then it makes it a little bit more sense. So going back to, you know, you've said the words, you know, Web3 and DAO a lot. Can you please explain to us first what you mean by Web3 and then we'll go down to DAOs without using any of the jargon. So you can't even do the DAO thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right? So, yeah, in, in your words, if you had to explain to someone who has absolutely no idea, so maybe maybe your grandma who just sold her, you know, mango farm, uh, of what Web3 is without the jargon, what would you say? Oh, well, I'll, I'll give it a go and you can tell me if I've, um, I've not my, done my job properly, but I think maybe the easiest is to compare it to Web2 and Web1. You know, because it's it's got to be in a – that's still jargon, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, because I don't even – honestly, I didn't even know that Web 1 and 2 existed. When So when people started comparing, I was like, what are you – I'm still trying to just wrap, like, wrap my head around this thing that's Web 3 and you're telling me there's a 2 and a 1? Like, where was I? <laughs> hey, I heard Web 5 yesterday and I thought, where was Web 4? <laughs> yeah, I'm so behind already. <laughs> and so, yeah, I mean, just in a way that's just tangible for someone like myself who is curious – um, but doesn't want to get lost in all that sort of language, what would be the easiest way to explain that? Well, I think, bear with me. Okay, bear all with right, me. All right, okay. So, so Web1 was the technology that gave us emails, the ability to for, for me to send an email through my personal computer to you. And that's the, the transfer of information. That's it. Web2 is where we get the companies like Google and Facebook um, collecting information from the internet and selling our data for money. So they've, they've gone ahead and they've progressed. They say, okay, well, the internet we can use for the transfer of information. We're going to put our walled gardens around particular pieces of information and sell it off for a profit. And for, by the time we get to Web3, we're like, we don't like centralized you know companies like google and facebook collecting our information making a profit and not sharing that profit with the people whose information it is 
And so Web3 is open. It's, it tries to break down those walled gardens by not, well, by not putting them up to begin with to say people can own their own data, own their own tokens, which some might call financial assets, but really own and control their online identity and online interactions. And so, you know, we we have um, a lot of reference back to Web 1 and, and when int- the internet and emails were coming about and regulators, they did try to clamp down then as well. But at that time, they weren't saying we like the, the technology, but, you know, get rid of these pesky emails. Um, but now in Web 3, you know, regulators and policymakers, because it is tough to understand, they're saying, well, we like the potential of blockchain technology, but get rid of these pesky tokens. <laughs> and and the tokens are part and parcel with the technology, but the tokens represent not just a transfer of information, but a transfer of value at the same time. And when we go back to that Web 2, payments systems and, and everything that we need to transfer value, um, that was separately integrated and separate private companies were making profits on the payments integrations. So Web3 is information and value at the same time where like a central entity is not intended to profit from that interaction. So spreading um, or decentralising or, or delocalizing or democratising and that those are probably four jargon words that I'm sorry that I had to use. <laughs> that's that's all good. I mean, it's hard, isn't it? It's hard, especially when you've you know you're so many years deep into it that it's it just becomes a part of your you know vernacular. But there are a lot of people out there who you can see that it's going to be impacting them and it's going to be valuable for them who just can't seem to jump in because of this wall of lexicon, right? That's that's stopping them from getting through. Well, put, just give me one more chance to to put it in to put it in another way. It might seem like a really big step in life to buy a house or to buy an apartment, and you know most people say oh, I'm going to save up money, I'm going to buy up a house. At that time, I'll get a conveyancing lawyer and a real estate agent to help me. Um, and then when I've bought that house, I want to build a fence you know, to enhance my security or I'm going to put, uh, you know, a video system to just do the basic things to protect myself. And that's something that many, many people have done and there are professionals around to help you secure the property that you own and the way that you want to interact in your own house. Web3, a lot of people are wanting to buy tokens but the, there's not the prof, the known professionals around it or the security measures, the basic security measures that people can just grab for themselves yet. All of that is still developing because our technology is only 13 or 14 years old and the internet had 20 years to mature. You know, that web one, it had 20 years before it got to the stage that we're at now. Mm-hmm. That was actually going to be the next question I was going to ask you. But just to clarify, when you're, I love the analogy of the house because it's something that people really associate as being theirs. You know, like I can go to the backyard and sing on top of my lungs and apparently no one can hear me, but really they can. You know, they, they really make it their own. And so it makes sense. So when you said when people have tokens and they can't have that security wrapped around them, are you saying for the analogy that you made, the token is like the house? 
Yeah. yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah, I just wanted to clarify it for the audience. But so, and that was, that leads on really nicely to the next question that I have for you. And, and that is personally, I don't know if I'm ready to take responsibility when I lose things, right. <laughs> or to protect my own house. It's kind of like I build my own vents. I build my own security system. I've got to install everything on my own. And that to me sounds a little bit scary. So do you think, where do you think we need to get to in order for us to feel that sense of security where we're like, actually, I can be a big girl now and I can take care of myself. And if I lose money here or there, that's my fault, but I own everything because it's all mine and it's all me. I I think we need probably human professionals. So if you want to have a go at doing things yourself, you still want to have that security blanket to know, oh, I can call Joni or Joni's friend and they know exactly how to do a health check on my personal computer my whole, you know, internet setup once a month or whenever I'm feeling like there's a high risk of scams so that you've got more of a trusted network around you and you don't feel like you're on your own. And and if we don't have humans, then it'll be through those alert prompts um, that you have to see either in your emails or the wallet interfaces. And, and we're all a bit skittish because... We want to say, is that email a legitimate email um, that I can trust um, before I act on anything? So, and that's not just particular to to Web three and to tokens. Increasingly, you know, other companies and normal consumer products are sub subject to those sort of scamming of their um, stakeholder bases. So, no one is is uh, free from having to skill up. And, and getting those cybersecurity common sense skills. For sure. I mean, a huge in Australia, you and I both know some big companies over here, big telecom companies who have had, you know, a lot of personal data from, from their clients and customers leaked and massive changes in structure and a lot of things are happening here. For example, you know, the driver's license, like I know I have to get another driver's license because my data was, you know, leaked, all that sort of stuff. So you're right. It's, it's not just a web three thing, but it's just a really interesting thought to go, Oh my God, this is all on me now (laughs) is what the narrative is around. So you, you mentioned a lot about this particular word and I know, well, acronym, I should say, and I know that you're super passionate about it. DAOs. Can you try and explain to to the audience what a DAO essentially is without the D, the A, and the O? <laughs> I think it's just a, a collective of people that want to use um, the technology to help them make decisions. See how easy was that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, interesting. And so, how is that different to what we do now? Well, a lot of companies you know, so you've got your proprietary limited or you've got your public companies that are listed, um, they're not technology first. They um, live and breathe through the documents like their constitution uh, or they might have a charter and their rules. They might have hundreds of policies, you know, workplace, health and safety, you know, more than any one normal person can get across and actually absorb. But in order for um, really protecting various legal liabilities, they have all of these policies in place, the constitution, there are existing laws that apply. And with all of those rules, we don't have transparent um, or free information flows. 
there's always imbalances between how much the right knows versus the left. And, you know, I, I just love DAOs because it takes you away from those private emails or the, just the discussion between you and I, and that conversation is put on an open forum. Um, Discord is one of the, the social platforms that's used a lot. And instead of you and I having that private conversation, it happens in the open and the whole community is up to speed with why that conversation started and then why the DAO is going in a particular strategic direction. And that kind of connection between people who are making decisions, the community that's affected by those decisions, you don't have that information flow as in real time in these big organisations. They have rules to say if you're listed when there should be a market announcement about something, um, but you just don't have it available in the public. And a lot of stuff doesn't make it out into the public, which often should. And and so I'm a bit disillusioned with both the inner workings of government, the inner workings of companies, and I think that um, more transparency is needed to just get back to the basic efficient delivery of goods and services for good consumer outcomes. And, and that's really, there's a lot of messy governance and messy conversations in DAOs. We're still figuring out how to do that in a, in a good way. Um, but it's, it's doing things differently because we're, we're not happy about the way things are currently being done in, in, the, in the existing legal vehicles that we have. Mm-hmm. Spoken like a true lawyer. Do you think it will shake up how companies are run? Not in a bear market, <laughs> but um, in, in the last bull, so, you know, about, about a year and a year and a half ago, DAOs and their tokens were, you know, obviously at higher values. And the centralised companies, so those listed companies like Apple, Google, Facebook, you know, even the mining companies, the likes of those were saying and reaching out, should we transition to a DAO structure and have a token? Because they saw the growth of maybe the structure but maybe the fact that the tokens were available for trading globally, not just in one national market. They saw that it was either a threat or that it was the structure that they needed to start moving to to maintain their market share. And a lot of that, actually all of it, has died off because we don't have legal and regulatory certainty of of the DAO structure and it would be too much market disruption for those big companies to transition to, to the DAO structure at the moment. But they were certainly asking the question, at the height of the last bull market. I mean, nothing gets you better notice than, you know, having epic ICOs and, you know, epic valuations for your coins from a DAO. So you can hear how much DAOs mean to you, you know, like it's oozing out of you just because not so much for DAOs in itself and, you know, Web3, but it's just the community aspect and the transparency is what I'm hearing a lot from, you know, a, a common thread that goes through your whole life. And I don't know how good my research is here, but... Are you still trying to develop your own DAO through a GoFundMe page somewhere perhaps? Is that still happening? Yes. Um, So it started as a GoFundMe when I didn't have a clear idea of of the DAO purpose that 
that we'd go on to hopefully put our efforts behind. The GoFundMe campaign is now closed. We we raised just under $10,000 and, yeah, I, di- I did it, but there was no marketing, absolutely no marketing. Um, it was just whoever found out through digging in my LinkedIn profile. So I was pretty happy with that. And thank you to everybody that donated. But um, that was through Bedazzle, my law firm, and then all of the funds raised have been donated to LawFiDAO which was created in July this year. And so there's all the information on the website available and all of the, um, every Friday is Dow Day for Lawfi Dow. So that's when it's, it's a clear day that we can activate the community. If you've got a pocket of time or if you've got the whole day, you can contribute or you can skill up because all of our sessions are recorded and available for you to watch our whole journey we're still in establishment phase, figuring out the right legal structures to support um, what we want to do. But it's essentially the introduction of the pay to rely, a pay to rely protocol to do law and and deliver legal advice differently to how it's currently being delivered. That is pretty cool. When I when I came across, I was like, "What is this?" <laughs> I was like, I did not see this anywhere. I didn't hear it anywhere when she was talking about it, any of the conferences. Um, so, I mean, really, really cool initiative. And, again, loving how grassroots you are and how, how much you're involved in community in there. But also your honesty around, like, not too sure where it's going yet, even as a professional who's been in there for ages. But we will work it out and we'll make sure it's best for the community rather than, you know, best for making our coins rocket to the moon and so I mean you've done so many things are there is there a particular challenge that stands out to you that you've had before and and how did you overcome that oh my goodness there's been a lot of challenges in my career (laughs) in my life actually it's hard to pick one but I think um until about four or five years ago I I never had the self-confidence to back myself, I always felt like I had to be an employee because I, w- I would never be confident enough to make decisions, you know, to, to direct my career or my life, um, let alone on behalf of others. But there was a, a person who had worked with me before and tapped me on the shoulder and, and said, will you come here? And, and basically they gave me a triple promotion because they recognised what I was doing in the market, all of the liaison with regulators, you know, being in the community and and learning about the technology. And they just said, you know, you shouldn't be, you know, still at the level that you were as a lawyer by category. And, And so they offered to bring me across at this effective triple promotion. And the law firm that I was at at the time, they didn't, they didn't want to match it. In law, you've got like um, graduate, lawyer, associate, senior associate, special counsel, partner. And so it was from lawyer to special counsel. So skipping, um, and it's just a reflection of in their terms how the the law firm I was at was holding me back um, or not recognising the value. So... I'm not alone in that sense. A lot of lawyers get promoted much later than they actually should be recognised. 
and that's a feature of, of being a lawyer and being in law. It's very, very slow moving beast. Once I went over to the, to the different firm, there was an immediate sense of respect for what I had done and built in the market and other partners in that firm, they wanted to meet me and wanted to introduce me to their clients. And, and then that belief in me, it just helped having that basic respect and and having earned it was a game changer because you're not doubting yourself anymore. You know, you've done the hard yards to get yourself where you are, despite all the criticisms that come with with being a baby lawyer and and learning the ropes. Um, That was a real game changer. And I just thought if only I'd had that kind of mentoring and kindness shown to me through, you know, going through the ranks, mental health and self-confidence would have been a lot better a lot earlier. That's really interesting. And this is something that always fascinates me because listening to your story, I can't even imagine how many points you would have tallied up on the board of like how awesome I like how awesome Joni is board and like all of these sticks are just you know accumulating over the lifetime yet you didn't see any of that no because it's very um you're always it's continuous improvement so as soon as you've achieved one um competency you've got 10 more before you in law, you're never an expert in your field because there's all there's always more case law coming down on how things are to be imp- interpreted or how the policy environment is changing. So you're never an expert and you can always learn from your, your seniors. So this is one reason why the law profession, it's one of the only professions that hasn't been disrupted. There is a certain way in which you prove your merit. And that's through a lot of hard work, a lot of chargeable hours. And, and one thing that I was criticised for is going to the meetups and learning about the blockchain technology and other technologies when I should have been staying back at work and clocking more hours because it's the hours that come up on the reports that get you promoted. So I made a trade-off that I wanted to learn and I wanted to be in the community. That gave me a brand and gave me a profile in the community which got me recognised in another law firm, but you're never going to succeed if, you know, most law firms just want you to be clocking the chargeable hours. So I bucked that trend, I made that trade-off, and a number of aspiring lawyers that want to work in Web3, they are faced with that same trade-off. They reach out to me and they say, Joni, can you give me some advice? How do I do what you did? And I say, well, you have to be okay with probably not getting promoted as fast as your peers to invest in your skill set and your networks to build a brand. And a lot of them don't want to build the brand. They want the safety of the employment and the regular promotion track. And, and so, yeah, making that trade-off, it's paid off for me now, but there were a lot of times, especially through the few bear markets that I've been through, where you say, have I made the right choice? And how did you give yourself, I wouldn't say permission, maybe permission is the wrong word, but how did you let yourself just go, okay, this is the track and this is the lawyer track and it's very written in stone almost and 
I'm going to, I'm going to go against that. Right. And this is potentially, you know, a, I mean, it could have made your career, which it has, or it could have really stifled your career, which it obviously hasn't. <laughs> um, and so how were you okay with that decision to kind of slowly fork away, you know, at times and branching away from the normal path? A lot of it comes down to following what I feel is my purpose and what feels right. And I mentioned to you that even through school, I felt like a bit of the outcast. Well, in these big law firms and corporate organizations, I still feel like the outcast and and that things need to be done better, cheaper, fairer, and more efficiently. So um, each time the decision has been difficult, my mum always says, Joni, if there's a fork in the road, you will always pick the hard road. (laughs) I'm not afraid of a challenge. Um, And in fact, because I think a lot of people are afraid, like a lot of people need the, sc- the security of employment and I've, I've got the circumstances where I've, I've got the safety net of my parents. I've got a husband that's got a, a fantastic job. I can make riskier decisions and, and back the principle that I think that should be upheld. And, and I do that because I know that there are a number of people that also believe in that principle but feel restrained in their ability to act. Hmm. I I really like how it's come down to like a values thing for you. You know, if if all of these external things kind of fall, I'm okay because I followed and I, I was stuck true to my values and my own principles, which obviously is really hard when you're faced with decisions where, as you recognize, you know, I can't pay the bills. You know, I, I actually can't physically afford to do that. And it's really cool that you do have the support network around you that if something wasn't to go so well, there is a plan B and C and it's not about just like quitting your job and like doing whatever and following your passion. It's kind of like, it's still calculated, but I think you're, you're, it sounds like you're more weighed towards what matters to me. Yeah. And, and it's, even though it's guided by purpose and values, the lawyer in me is always having a logical, like what are all the possible scenarios of this? And, and I think that um, I do have some OCD addictive qualities that means I do think things through a lot. And so even though it might seem risky or or the difficult road, I can bet you that I've considered a lot of the things that make that road difficult and how I'm going to challenge them. But I'm also okay with, um, because I have done labor, hard labor, hard farm work, I know I can do it and I know I'm good at it. And I'm not too proud to work on a farm or to go and work at the Coles checkout again, or just to to do any sort of job to keep my family's lights on if it comes to it. I'm lucky that I get to practice law and be a lawyer and influence policy now. Maybe things will turn that I don't get to do that anymore. But but yeah, given the way I was raised, I'll always have a hard work ethic. And even if I were to make millions of dollars and not have to work again, I would probably still be working I don't doubt that whatsoever. (laughs) Um, I've got a couple of quick fire questions for you and feel free to just anything that comes out of the top of your head, please. Uh, Favorite book. Oh, um, the brain balance program (laughs) by Robert Melillo. It's um, a scientific evidence, evidence-based book, but it, it, it basically tells you if you've got a right brain balance or a left brain imbalance or you're multi-dominant and it explains a number of the the ways you act 
uh, why you're acting in those ways. Wow. And what are you, if you don't mind me asking? I'm a, a right brain dominant. Is that the <laughs> analytical side? No. Yes. Yep. Left is creative, yep. right is analytical. So I guess yeah. that's, it <laughs> makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, do you have a favourite podcast? Unchained by Laura Shin. Oh, yes. Yes. Um, I tried to listen to that when I first started, you know, my crypto Web3 journey. I was like, wow, all of these just flying over my head. I don't understand. Can someone give me something more simple? I mean, don't get me wrong. She's brilliant. But I just found it so hard to digest just because of where I was at at the time. Like it obviously didn't make sense for me. Um, best resource for tech? Oh, meetups. Ooh. Actually going field. to the meetups and asking the people that know. <laughs> oh, nice one. I did not see that coming. Thank you for that. What about a hobby that you have at the moment? Colouring in. And, and drawing with my two-year-old and my four-year-old. Cute. What what go-to colouring books are we in at the moment? Are we like SpongeBob? Are we Dora? <laughs> well, my four-year-old loves Spider-Man, so it's all Spider-Man and superheroes, and my two-year-old loves Frozen, so Elsa and Anna. So when you're not singing the song and pretending to be either Elsa or Anna, you're shooting webs through Spider-Man gloves. Is that right? (laughs) Yeah. I'm I'm a good web shooter. (laughs) Oh, look at that. You're a good web shooter. Web three. Oh, my God. Um, Oh, my goodness. (laughs) I I honestly thought you picked the one. Oh, I can't believe you didn't. I was like, she's got it, but I'm just going to state the obvious anyway. Um, Just a couple of closing questions for you. What can our community do to support you? Well, I think um, if, if, they're so minded to learn about DAOs, definitely jump onto the Lawfi DAO Discord, ask and ask questions. The community call is 9am Melbourne time every Friday. So they can jump on there and ask questions um, or send something through to JP at lawfidao.com if, if they wanted to remain anonymous and watch the recording later. But in the meantime, I think it's just um, send a note, send a message, comment on on LinkedIn or say hi at any of the in-person events because um, I'd love to get to know you or or people who have a passion about being in the community more and and the strange thing about me is I have a pretty good memory so if you tell me something that you're interested in if it's five months or five years later you'll probably still be in my mind and I'll give you that call. That's crazy. I can't even remember what I have for breakfast. I don't know how you do that. Speaking of connecting with you, how can we connect with you? Uh, probably email is info at bedazzle, B-A-D-A-S-L dot com. I'm mostly on LinkedIn with just the profile Joni Pirovich, a little bit on Twitter, um, but I respond more to LinkedIn DMs or emails to either Bedazzle or LawFidow. Awesome. I wish I had known that before I sent you that DM in, in Twitter. I was like, any <laughs> bets, she doesn't. Let, let's just try True, anyway. but I still check it. Yeah, you do. You do. You're right. You're right. Well, look, thank you so much for making the time and what an interesting conversation about, I guess, about you and your journey, but also how excited you are about this 
new but not new space um and of course thank you so much for everyone who's listening and for hanging out with us in the women in tech podcast to connect and collaborate with more incredible women like Joni in tech around the world remember to go to womenintechvip.com that's womenintechvip.com and of course say hello to us on our socials at women in tech show on twitter instagram or on facebook and until next time stay safe and be rad bye Hi, this is Joni Pirovich. I'm a principal at Bedazzle, B-A-D-A-S-L. I run a Web3 focused law firm that gives legal and non-legal strategic advice in the Web3 space. I'm based in Melbourne, but I do travel in Australia and around the world. Catch me at any of the in-person or virtual meetups going on. And you're listening to Women in Tech. The Women in Tech podcast is hosted and produced by me, Esprit Devora, With help from Janice Geronimo. Edited by Corey Jennings. Production and voiceover by Adam Carroll. And music from Jay Huffman Live and Epidemic Sound. The Women in Tech podcast is a wearetech.fm production. Thank you for being a listener of the Women in Tech podcast. To support the podcast and cheer us on, become an MVL Most Valuable Listener, go to womenintech.love, linked in the show notes.